Hello again to everyone. We're thankful for another opportunity the Lord's provided us with that we could study and look into His Word. We are certainly thankful for His grace and for His help unto us. And This is our third part in the study. And again, I say if you've not listened to part one, which was called Is Mankind Completely Corrupt or Free Moral Agents? And if you've not listened to part two, is salvation a free choice or divinely influenced? I strongly recommend that you go back and listen to those episodes because, again, we're going to be building on those same thoughts here today. Um, so today, what we would like to look at is, is salvation of the will of man or the will of God. And I, I believe up to this point, I, I believe that most people would agree with everything that we've looked at so far, and, and maybe that's not true for everyone, but we recognize that mankind has fallen, he is in sin, he's under the power of Satan, sin has him under control, and he's not free of his own power or ability to choose God. And the only way that a man can come to Christ for salvation is that God would divinely influence him by the Spirit through the gospel and draw him to the Son of God. So man can't be saved on his own. He can't come to God. He can't come to Christ on his own. But there must be the power of God drawing him. So today's question, we'd like to expand a little farther on that and think, does this grace, what most would call provenient grace, does everyone receive the same grace and the same opportunity, or is there a specific call to them that are saved? And I think right here is where the tension right here is where the hatred begins to flow. Um, but, you know, we would like to show why we believe what we believe by the Scripture. And I, I've done my very best, and maybe it's been a poor job the last two times, of keeping opinion and thoughts out of it, letting the Scripture speak for itself, and God help us to believe the Scripture. And that's what I'm going to try my best to do today. So is grace the same for all? So in Matthew chapter number 10, verse number 14 and 15. So Jesus here is sending out disciples to go and to preach the gospel. And he says, whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words when you depart out of that house or city. Shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So I, I think maybe it's not as obvious here. But you know, if 
if Sodom and Gomorrah, which was exceedingly wicked, if they had received the same opportunity and the same chance as these places where his apostles were going to be preaching the gospel, then how then would it be fair for God to judge them harsher than Sodom and Gomorrah? And notice this, a a city, a place that is, uh, I mean, symbolic of evil. When you think of an evil city and an evil people, I truly believe that in the majority of people that read the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah is one of the first places thought of for their wickedness and rebellion towards God. And certainly they were wicked by the scripture. But Jesus says it'll be better, it'll be more tolerable, more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that place where the apostles have been preaching the gospel. So he's going to expound on that a little further in Matthew 11, verse number 20 and following. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. So now Jesus is going to upbraid. He's going to reprove these cities that had had all of these miracles and signs and indications wrought by Christ and had not believed and had not repented. So we're going to see later on in this study why it was they didn't believe the miracles. But for now, let's just walk down through this scripture, the next verse, verse 21. Woe unto thee, Cherazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So Jesus, in his instruction here, he says that Cherazin and Bethsaida had had greater works performed in them than what Tyre and Sidon had received or seen. Was there works done there? There was. But if you compare the two, Cherazin and Bethsaida, to the two of Tyre and Sidon, if you compared those cities one with another, there was more works, more opportunity, more knowledge, more power in Cherazin and Bethsaida than there were in Tyre and Sidon. From this verse, we can see that not everyone receives the same opportunity. And that's all we want to start with here. That Jesus performed more mighty works in Cherazin and Bethsaida. And I think in our day, the thought and the reply to that would be, well, God knew that Tyre and Sidon wouldn't believe so he didn't give them that opportunity like he did Cherazin and Bethsaida. But we see 
that that is not true. Because Jesus says, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Jesus, now if you want to talk about foreseeing, Jesus says, if I had done there what I've done here, they would have repented. But I didn't do. He did not do there like he done in Chorazin and Bethsaida. So it's not foreseen works either. Jesus says they would have repented. But they did not have the opportunity that Bethsaida and Chorazin had. Verse 22, But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. So the judgment, and I, I don't know the capacity, I don't know the explanation of how God doesn't give us in the word an explanation of how this is going to be. But Jesus certainly teaches that there are degrees of punishment in hell. How it's going to be more tolerable, I can't answer that question. But we can see that Tyre and Sidon is going to have a more bearable judgment than for Chorazin and Bethsaida. And the reason for that is greater opportunity given by God. So you could argue there and say, okay, but after Jesus resurrects, the apostles are going to go there and preach. That, that very well could be true. But the next two verses, that can't be true for. So verse 23, again, this is Matthew 11, verse 23. This is some weighty scripture. And when I chew this up and swallow this down, I can begin to see deeper and farther into the text. So, and thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in Sodom had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. So I'm sorry I messed up the reading of that. But you see here, Capernaum is going to be brought down to judgment. And Jesus says that if the works done in Capernaum had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, it would have remained. So I realize he doesn't say that they would have repented. But I do believe that you can see the implication of that in the Scripture. Jonah went to Nineveh, an evil city. He pronounced the judgment of God. They repented, and God did not destroy. The city remained. Well, God says here, if I had gave Sodom the opportunity that you've had, the city would have never been destroyed. They would have repented. But I didn't give them that opportunity. And so you see, Sodom is not a place that the apostles can go and preach to because thousands of years before this, God had 
destroyed Sodom with fire and brimstone. So you can't say that about this example. But again, verse 24, But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. So if God, if we take these scriptures, and you say, well, God is required to give everybody the same opportunity and the same chance for salvation. And God grants that opportunity and then it's up to the will of man. If that's the case, then God owes Sodom an apology. And God's going to have to bring them back from the dead and do these works in them and grant them the same opportunity. But that's not going to happen. Now, it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom. So you see, the judgment here is based on the understanding and the gospel that's present in the area and not on the wickedness of the outward work. And so, from this text, what can we draw from this text? That there are degrees of punishment in hell, not based on works of the flesh, but based on the opportunity given of God. And we understand that opportunity is not based on foreseen faith, because God foresaw that both Sodom and Gomorrah and Tyre and Sidon would have repented, but God didn't give them the opportunity that these other cities had to repent. And we also see that this grace is not the same to every individual. But grace is given as God sees fit to give it. So again, in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, again, along these same lines, but he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much, of him will they ask the more. So again, degrees of punishment. And we see that it's not based upon the sin of the flesh. Remember Sodom. Was Sodom as wicked as Capernaum? I say in works of the flesh, you would never compare the two. Capernaum was filled with uh, religious and law-abiding Jews. Sodom was filled with wickedness. But the degrees of punishment are based on the degree of opportunity and knowledge that's provided. So I don't think there's any arguing that point. Grace is not the same to each and every individual. And when you really think about it in our day, to say that other countries, and there's some countries that 
have pitiful leaders and that have embedded religion and persecution of anything that resembles Christianity. To think that they have the same opportunity the people sitting in your church have under preaching week after week, there's, there's no way that everyone has the same grace afforded unto them. That's what the Lord Jesus teaches in the Gospels. And so that means that the calling then is not a general call that enables everybody to come to the gospel. But it's varying. So in, in Romans 10, so they say, well, if there's preaching then, then everybody that hears that preaching, they can choose to come to Christ or not. Well, in, in Romans chapter number 10, and we're going to get out of order here just for a second. But in Romans chapter 10, we know that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But he's going to go into a little deeper detail to that calling on the Lord. How shall they call in whom they've not believed? How shall they believe in whom they've not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet. So there's a work that's got to be done before a man can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. The gospel must be preached. As we saw in the previous study, the ear and the heart must be open to hear what the Spirit is saying and God must draw them to Christ. And when God draws them, I'm not adding things to the Scripture. That's what Scripture teaches even around this text. If you pull that one verse out, you can make it say something that the Bible does not teach. But let's not do that. So God must be drawing in order for them to get to this place. So in Romans 10, verse 17, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? So you say, well, you see, faith comes by hearing, so when people hear, they have faith and they get to come. Well, Paul's going to ask the question, have they not heard? Yea, they've heard. Verily, their sound went into all the earth. So the, the general call of the gospel is going out. But there is a call that's greater than just hearing preaching with a natural ear. There's a call that comes to the heart of man. So in Matthew Chapter number 16, verse number 17. Now we looked at this previously. The Lord asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? Well, some say John the Baptist. Some say Jeremiah. Some say Elijah. Some say one of the prophets. But who do you say? Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. So God hath done a work in Peter. It's not that Peter was extra good. 
and he figured it out on his own, but this was revealed by the Father in heaven. And he knew what nobody else knew because the Father had revealed it to him. Again, in John chapter 5, verse 24. We're going to hang out in John for a little while now. John 5, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Is that true? That's very true. Everyone that believes has everlasting life. I believe that with all my heart. But who's going to believe? In verse number 25, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. So listen to the way that's worded. And, you know, this, this is not as clear a text as we're going to look at, but I believe with just a little bit of thought, you can clearly see what he's saying. So now, he's not talking about the end of the age. If you look in John 5, in the verses following this, he's going to talk about everyone in the graves being brought up. But here we're talking about the gospel dispensation, the, the age of grace, that the word of God's going to be preached the dead are going to hear and be brought to life spiritually unto salvation. Exactly what he was talking about in verse 24. He that heareth my word and believeth. And so in verse 25, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear. So who's going to hear? The dead are going to hear. Are all the dead going to hear? and have opportunity to get up based on their will? Or is only a certain segment of the dead going to hear? And that segment is going to be resurrected. By the words of Jesus, they that hear shall live. So you see, not all of the dead are hearing but those that do hear are going to be made alive by the word of the Son of God. So there's a work going on inwardly that is bringing man to life and opening his heart just like he did with Lydia in the book of Acts, just like he did with those Gentiles that were ordained unto eternal life. They were brought out of that fallen state in Adam and brought to a place that they could spiritually hear the word of God and be drawn to Jesus in salvation. I believe it's clear that the word's not going out to all the dead and man is making a free will choice of whether he's coming to God or not. But God is enabling some to truly hear in their heart and others are not being enabled to hear. 
I believe that's what Jesus is saying to Peter in Matthew 16. God's revealed it to you. Peter, it's not because you're better than them. It's not because you made better choices. It's not because your family was more religious. It's not because you put forth great effort and strength and you've done some good work that they've not done, but the Father's revealed this to you. And so, they that hear shall live. John chapter 6, verse 35. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Is Jesus the bread of life? He absolutely is. Everyone that comes to the Lord Jesus will, without fail, be saved from the judgment and receive eternal life. But who's coming to Jesus? That's the question. I do not I do not disbelieve John 3.16. I fully believe that whosoever believeth. But who is going to believe? Well, he's going to extend that out here. John 6, verse 36. But I say unto you, they that ye also have seen me and believe not. These people had seen the Lord Jesus and had not believed. So what's the reason for that? Verse 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. So if you're not careful, you'll quote the last part of that verse and you'll miss the first part of it. Who is going to come to the Lord Jesus? Those that the Father gives him. We're going to see that theme in several other places as well. But those that the Father giveth him shall, that is without fail, those that the Father gives to Jesus, they shall, without fail, come to him in faith, believing. They shall come to me, and him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. So do you see that the Father is doing a work that's bringing man to Jesus, and Jesus then is doing a work that's bringing man to life. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. So who's coming to Jesus? Those that the Father has given to him. They shall come. It doesn't look like it's a maybe. It doesn't look like it's a, well, they'll have a chance to, but they're coming and Jesus is going to redeem them because this is the Father's will that all that the Father gives to Jesus, He's not going to lose any of them. So in John chapter 6, this is a few verses past that. In verse 64, 
But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. This wasn't a surprise to Jesus. Neither was it a surprise that Judas was going to betray him. That was known from the beginning. And he said, Therefore I said unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given him of my Father. Why did Jesus say that? Because that's the way it had to be. People saw these miracles. They saw the Lord working. They saw him feeding the 5,000 here. They heard that he was the bread of life, but they would not come to him. And therefore said I unto you, this is why that I said, you can't come to me except the Father draw you. If God's not doing a work, you're not going to come to Christ in faith. My faith is a result of God's work. It's God's gift. Not my faith results in God's work, but God's work comes first. John chapter 8, verse number 46 and 47. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? It's a good question, isn't it? Why, why don't people believe the gospel? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Now, I realize this is another one that's not crystal clear in its meaning and interpretation. But again, I believe with just a little thought, we can interpret exactly what the Lord is saying in this scripture. So if you say, well, they've got to be born again in order to hear God's word. Well, he's talking to people that are lost here. And so if, if they're not born again, how are they ever going to hear the gospel and be saved? Unless born again, that regeneration from above occurs before that we hear the gospel in spirit and come and be saved. They heard not because they were not of God. Now, if you'll reason with me, through life previous to your salvation, when the gospel came, you heard with a natural ear, but you never heard it in conviction in the heart until God done a work that brought you to hearing the gospel, convinced and convicted you of the truth, and drew you to Christ. So why is it that these people were not hearing the word of God? He says, because you're not of God. God's not done a work, therefore you're not hearing my words. John chapter 10, verses 2 and through 4. 
Another familiar scripture, Jesus is the good shepherd. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. We know that that's the Lord Jesus. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. So here's the picture. In Jerusalem, in Bethlehem, in these cities, these shepherds, they would take their flocks out in the pasture and in the fields during the day to eat and to drink. But at night, when the shepherds needed to rest, they had a place called uh, the sheepfold at these towns and at these cities. It was a fenced-in and enclosed area with one door. The shepherd would put his sheep in, and all the other shepherds would put their sheep in, and the porter would stand guard at night while the shepherds rested. And the next morning, the shepherd of the sheep, and the porter knew the shepherds, the shepherd of the sheep would come to the door and would call, and his sheep that were in the fold would come out and follow him. So that's the picture that the Lord is referring to here of that time and of that day. But listen to what he's saying and listen to the way that this is said. To him the porter openeth and the sheep hear his voice. So who hears the, the natural voice of the good shepherd? All of the sheep in the fold hear that natural voice of the shepherd. But you know, the only ones that are affected by that call are those that are his. He calleth his own sheep by name. So you see how that there's a fold full of sheep and not all of them belong to the good shepherd. But he's calling each and every one of his sheep out of that flock and he's doing it individually, and he's doing it by name. He's not calling every sheep's name in the fold. He's calling his sheep's name that are in the fold. And they know his voice, and they follow him. Why do they follow him? Because they were his. They were his from the beginning. Let's go down a few verses in John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also must I bring, and they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one fold and one shepherd. So in the context of this scripture, what's he talking about other fold? Well, here he's speaking to the, to the Jews, to Israel. And in Israel, now there's a lot of sheep in Israel that do not belong to the Lord Jesus. But Jesus is calling his sheep out of Israel and into the fold of the good shepherd. And he's got other sheep that are not of Israel. That's the Gentiles. That's you and I. And he's going to call his sheep out of that fold as well. And he's going to take them out of these separate places 
and there's going to be one fold and one family in Christ. But notice that the call is to those sheep that are His. Other sheep I have that are not of this fold. They're already His even though they've not been called out yet. This is not something based on what I do. This is done before I ever do. And it's something I receive the benefit of by grace and by mercy. They shall hear my voice. Without question, without fail, the sheep of the Lord are going to hear and they're going to move. Let's move along down just a little few more verses. John 10 verse 25 and following. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. So Jesus has says, I'm telling you, you don't believe me. And I've done mighty works before you that bear witness that I am indeed the Son of God, but you are not believing them. Verse 26, but you believe not because... Why don't they believe? Because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Why were they not hearing? Because they weren't of his sheep. If they had been his sheep, they would have heard, they would have believed, and they would have followed him. That's what he's saying here. He is not saying that they were not my sheep because they've not heard, but he's saying they're not hearing because they're not my sheep. See, God is above everything else. God's above man, even in this case. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me, and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. This is a sure and a certain work from before the foundation of the world. And they can't be plucked out of the Lord Jesus, and they can't be plucked out of the Father's hand. His sheep will, without fail, hear the call, answer the call, follow the call, receive eternal life, and be saved. And the reason that they do is because they were His sheep. And the unbelievers, they're going to rebel, they're going to disbelieve, they're going to reject, they're going to hate, and they're going to do that because they were not His sheep. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and following. We looked at some of this in a previous study. But we preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block and under the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So Paul's preaching the gospel. And Paul, by the Holy Spirit, writes that to the Jews, the gospel 
is a stumbling block. To the Greeks, the gospel is foolishness. Now, as a whole, that's the way the gospel is today. To the religious crowd, it causes them to stumble because they think they're righteous on their own and the gospel declares otherwise. And to the Greeks, to the wise world, it's foolish and it's a crutch to believe the gospel. But, so there's a difference made here. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks. So do you see the distinction here? There's Jews that the gospel's a stumbling block to. But to the Jews which are called, why, preacher, everybody's called. That's not what he's saying here. Unto them which are called, the Jews which are called, Christ is the power and wisdom of God. To the Greeks, the gospel is foolishness. But unto the Greeks which are called, it's Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. What is the difference? The calling is the difference. My response and their response was not what made the difference. It was the calling of God that made the, the difference between these folks. So it's more than a hearing in the natural ear. It's a hearing in the heart. Jews and Greeks, they had heard with a natural ear, but unto them which were called, that opening of the heart, like Lydia. Christ, the power of God and redemption. I realize maybe that's not as clear. But if you go down two more verses, verse 26, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish, the Foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. We could read on and on, but I think that's sufficient to prove our point here. Do you see your calling? You see how God persuaded and convicted and drew you to the Lord Jesus Christ? How that on the night you were saved, the weight of conviction was so weighty upon you that you could not get out from under it. The fear of hell was so real to you that you thrust yourself at Jesus to be rescued from that. You see your calling? And do you see that others are not called that way? That's what the apostle is saying to the church at Corinth. Look at how you've been called and how that the multitudes of others have not. But God's chose to call the weak and the foolish, the backwards and the base. I feel like this is a good place to respond. The accusation that we believe only a righteous few are going to be saved. I believe the exact opposite of that. I believe the the few at the bottom of the barrel, the worst of the worst, God's going to save. 
So that the verse is true at the end of 1 Corinthians 1, that no flesh should glory in His presence. It's going to be to the glory of God. Why are we saved? Because of God and because of God alone. So the calling, not same to all, but it goes as God directs. Why was the church at Corinth called when these wise and mighty and noble were not? Because God hath chosen. It was the selection. It was the choice. It was the determination of God who was going to be called and who was not going to receive that calling. So, not the will of man, but the will of God. Now here's where it gets heated. Bear with me and listen to some of these scriptures. Matthew 11, verse 25 and 26. At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it so it seemed good in thy sight. Jesus here is praying a prayer of thankfulness that God's revealing the work that he's doing in Christ to the babes, but also that he's hiding these things from wise and prudent. For so it seemed good in your sight. Think about that scripture now. The Lord is saying in a thankful prayer that God's hid this from the eyes of people. John 1, 11 through 13. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now there's a popular verse. I absolutely agree that everyone that receives him and everyone that believes will be given power to become the Son of God. But who's going to believe? Who's going to receive? We've already proven that it must be a divinely influenced work. And so you say, well, see, God's just enabling people and then they're choosing of their free will whether they're coming or not. Ain't it something that that's what's thought of out of this verse? And the next verse is not taken into consideration. I'm going to read John 1, 12 and 13 together. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This was not the will. That, let, let's start at the start. Which were born not of blood. This was not based on family history. It was not nobility in their bloodline. It was not religion in their bloodline. It's not that they were in a family of uh, great preachers. This why they received this. But blood had nothing to do with this birth. Nor of the will of the flesh. The determination, 
choice or preference. That's what will means. Determination, choice, or preference of the flesh. So this determination and this choice, that word of, it means origin, the place which action proceeds. This determination and choice did not originate in the flesh. It was not me that wanted to come to God. It was the opposite. Remember, we were fallen. We did not want to come to God of ourselves. Nor of the will of man. So my flesh did not desire to come to God. Neither was it of, so that word again, origin. This did not originate in the determination, choice, or preference of man. It was not because that dad or mom wanted me to be saved that got me saved. It was not that the church wanted me to be saved and that got me saved. If that was the case, if that's why I was saved, then I ought to get up Sunday morning and say, I'm thankful that the church got me in. But nobody dares say, that sounds like a heretic because it is a heretic. It was not the will of the flesh. It was not the will of man. It was not of blood, but of God. This birth originated in God. John chapter 12, verse 37. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? So the Lord's done a pile of works. And of a truth, we've got a great number of them through the Gospels. A great number. But even that, I, I believe with all my heart, it's just a small portion of all the works that Jesus did while he was on the earth. And yet in spite of all that, they still believed not on him to the fulfilling of the scripture in Isaiah 53, 1, who hath believed our report, to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed. Verse 39 now. This is the same text, John 12. I'm in verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. So he's quoting here from Isaiah, and Isaiah 6 and verse 10, make the heart of this people fat, make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest, in order that not, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Isaiah 44, verse 18, They have not known nor understood, for he hath shut their eyes that they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot understand. What's happening? They could not believe because Isaiah said he blinded their eyes. 
That is what the scripture says. John chapter 12, verses 37 through 40. Turn there and read it. And so God is illumining some, and God is not illumining others. Now, we've already read this. We've referred to it. But let's look at it one more time. I think it's very fitting even right here in Acts 13, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. They believed because of the ordination of God. So we won't dwell there. We've already covered that verse very well. Now Romans chapter number 8, verse 28 and following. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. So everything works to the good. I think a lot of times this is the way that verse is stated. Everything works to the good to them that are saved. That's true. But he says it a little different and he makes it, 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 he makes it just a little bit finer than just that broad statement. Everything works together for the good to them who are the called according to his purpose. Who are the ones that love God and who are the ones that all things work together for good for? It's them that he's called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow. Now you can, you can explain this all day and say he's talking about Jesus here. But I think if you'd be willing to read this scripture, you can see that he's not conforming Jesus to the image of his son, Jesus. That does not make sense. He's speaking here about them that are saved. He's been speaking in Romans chapter 8 about the Holy Spirit dwelling and leading and guiding them that are saved. And we've come down here and we're still talking about them that are saved. Whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. It's by predestination that these people are being taken out of the fallen heap of man and made into the image of the son of God. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. So notice who's being called, those that were predestinated. Well, that calling's to everybody, and it's up to them what they do. Well, the next part, I am in Romans 8, verse 30. Whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. So following along the line, all of those that were predestinated were called. All of those that were called were justified. You see, this is a call that brings man to Jesus because all of them that were called, they were justified. And whom he justified, so those that were justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? 
My God, what a work that God's done to assure our salvation unto us. See, that's what he's saying in Romans chapter 8. This is a work of God that God brings about. And, you know, you can say, well, you're, you're saying that God brings people kicking and screaming and that God throws people away that wants to be saved. I believe we've already proven through Scripture and with a little bit of thinking, I believe we can see it in our own time and in our own day that the only people that come to God are them that God has drawn. They are there because God has called them and drawn them. And they will not be cast out. Now the rest of the world, they're willful disbelievers of the gospel. They can't be anything else of their own power and ability. They're not trying to come to God and be saved. Only them that are drawn. And God's not dragging people either. God's awakening people. He's revealing the truth to them. And when that's revealed, they come to Christ for salvation. Willingly. Romans 9 verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. So now if you'll think about that question. Is God unfair? Is God being unrighteous? Is he treating people unequitable? In Romans 9 verse 14. That's the question that's being asked. And I think that question is the key to understanding what's said previous. He's talking about uh, Isaac and Rebekah and their two sons, those twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And so these two boys, before they were even born, God said, I've loved Jacob and I've hated Esau and I'm going to show mercy on whom I show mercy and whom I will, I'll harden. So man says today, well, He's talking about the flesh and the spirit there. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about people being saved. He's not talking about... But, you know, Esau and Jacob, they, they were two legitimate, real people. But I don't believe that can be... I don't believe that can be said. That's a, a pleasant explanation that makes it easier on my flesh. But why then would God say, is there unrighteousness with God? Is this unfair of God to act this way? Now, anybody that says, well, it's up to you and what you do, and that's why, people that believe that, they've never ever said, well, that's not fair. But this doctrine, it looks like it's unfair to me. You're being unfair to me. Well, Paul says, is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Now, you want to talk about something that hurts the feelings of the flesh. For he saith to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. 
God said, I'll love who I want to love and I'll have mercy on who I want to have mercy. Is God required to have mercy and show love everybody? Not according to the Scripture. And in verse 16, listen, don't get mad at me and run away. Read that verse and tell me that's not what he's saying. I am persuaded that that is the plain and simple Scripture. Verse 16, So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that sheweth mercy. It's not about me. It's not about you. But it's God that shows mercy. Now how about, how about an example? A well-known example. What about Pharaoh in Moses' day? For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up that I might shew my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Why was Pharaoh raised up? So that God would destroy him and God's name be exalted? That's what he says in the Old Testament and that's what's quoted right here. And in verse 18, therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy and whom he will, he hardeneth. This is God's choice. This is God's work. Why is there a church? Because of God. Why has anybody believed? Because of God. Not because of anything to do with the man. It's not of him that willeth. It's of God. And glory be to God that has shown us mercy and brought us into life in Jesus because if God's left out of the equation... I'm never going to be saved. And neither are you. Romans 11, 4 and following. So he's been talking about Elijah here. You remember Elijah? When he gets depressed and he says, I'm the only one left. They've tore down your altars. They've forsaken the law. They've turned their back on you. And I'm the only one serving you. And God says, I've reserved 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So in Elijah's day, there was a remnant that didn't bow to Baal and that served and worshipped God. And today there is a remnant that have not bowed the knee to Baal, and that serve and worship God, not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but this remnant is according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. That sounds like a lot harder verse to understand than what it really is. He's saying that works and grace, they can't be mingled together. It can't be that I receive grace because of my work because then it's not grace. 
If grace is unmerited, unwarranted, and unearned, then work can't be included with it because then I'm doing something to merit or to earn. So it's either holy of grace or it's holy of my work. But it's the election of grace. That's why there's people that are saved. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Who obtained the salvation that they were looking for? The election received it. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 and following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of His will. So the Father planned the church. He chose us. He predestined us. The Lord Jesus died for us. And in verse 13, the gospel by the power of the Spirit called us and brought us to Christ to finish this work. It is God that both worketh to do to wheel of his good pleasure. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. So God from the beginning chose, he made selection to salvation through. The means that we are going to receive this salvation is through sanctification, the purification of the Spirit, and believing the truth. See, that's the means that God used to get us there. That's not what got us there, and then God saved us. God had already chosen, and He brought us to it through sanctification of the Spirit, and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've went from eternity past, from the beginning. God chose that we should receive salvation. Let's just say the Thessalonians. God chose from the beginning that the church at Thessalonica should receive salvation, and they're going to get that salvation through the Spirit purifying them and believing the truth. And now we've come all the way to the day and hour that we're in, whereunto he called you by our gospel. God used Paul to preach the gospel to them that called them into the salvation that God chose before the foundation of the world that they should receive. See, this is God's work. God's work. This is God's will 
and not the will of man. And before you get mad about that, you, you may already be. But remember this, if, if God does not do this work, then nobody's going to be saved. This is required in order that man would come to Christ and be saved. James 1, 17, and I'm, I'm almost finished for today. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Not of our will we were begotten. Not because I wanted it, I got it. Because before the call of God came, I did not want it, didn't need it, didn't desire to be saved. I desired to be saved after God wrought. That's the way it works. You, We know that. So it was of His will that we were begotten, not my will. And we're going to finish with one verse. One verse that we all very well know. John chapter 15 and verse 16. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. So, you have not chosen me. Could we believe that? Could we believe that it was not me that chose Christ, but it was Christ that chose me and drew me and brought me to salvation by the convincing spirit and by the call of the gospel. I realize that this three-part study, it hasn't answered every accusation that's been thrown. But you know, I, I've heard a lot of lies about what we believe it's always blown way out of proportion. Things that are said that are, that honestly, they're, they're bald-faced lies said about what we believe to people. And I hope that through this, we could at least clear up that we're trying to believe the Scripture as the Scripture's written. And I do believe that what we believe is the Scripture. I believe through this study you can see that the Bible does bear witness to the truth. So I, I hope you'll prayerfully consider the Word of God and I pray that the Lord's grace be with you all. Again, I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this. I pray that the Word of God might be a strength and a help to you in the days to come. Please do pray for us. You know, we, we're brethren. The church of the living God, the born again, we're brethren. Arm in arm. God help us to stand for the Bible.
Thank you again. Pray for us.